Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm Mila Atmos. Today on Future Hindsight, we're talking to Roland Augustine. He's a principal of the art gallery Luring Augustine in New York. He's a passionate advocate for various causes, most notably in education. He is on the board of trustees at Bard College, where he is actively involved in the Bard Prison Initiative, as well as in supporting refugees at Bard College in Berlin. Thank you for joining us today. Welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. You are a true example of what it means to be a stakeholder in improving our society. Thank you for your service. You're very kind. I owe a great deal of gratitude to my dear friend and colleague, uh, Leon Botstein, president of Bard. My commitment to education was quite significant, but it was the Bard Prison Initiative that was the real catalyst for my uh, further involvement in civic engagement. What are the roots of your civic engagement before this? Because you don't kind of, yeah. you know, out of nowhere, start supporting initiatives. Well, you don't. And I think it begins w with one's childhood. I was very fortunate in that I had, uh, I had both uh, two very uh, loving and caretaking parents who came from little or nothing in, in, uh, in their lives and who became caretakers for many people. Uh, and uh, whether it was for the Catholic Church um, or whether it was for family members. Um, but I found myself increasingly inspired by the fact that they took it upon themselves to give back in ways that became models of behavior. What became increasingly apparent to me in terms of my interest in the political landscape and the social landscape was that our country, in notwithstanding the advances we were making, we were living in a very static world where things were not changing um, to the degree that they should be. And the prison system in particular was something that was glaring in my mind uh, in terms of the way the culture was perpetuating itself and no one was really doing anything about it. And if you visit some of the prisons and the communities, let's say in Ellenville, New York, where you realize that it's a self-perpetuating industry. We spend $150 billion a year in this country to keep people in prison. We have two and a half million people incarcerated, the largest incarceration rate in the world of a developed country. 80% uh, of them are not hardened criminals. I felt that along with my colleague Max Kenner, who was the executive director of the program, who started the program as a student at Bard, uh, what a wonderful initiative to become involved with and to explore and to support. This is a very sophisticated level, should I say, of civic engagement. What does civic engagement mean to you personally? In the larger sense, what civic engagement means is becoming an advocate for social equality, for social justice. It can begin at the most basic elemental level, whether it's in your own little town. I grew up in Kingston, New York. You know, I knew about the prisons in Allenville and the surrounding area. And it always kind of mystified me that these places would just simply continue to exist and grow without any uh, opposition uh, unless one became civically engaged and an advocate for change. A sad part of our life today is the fact that if you consider that only, let's say in Alabama last week, 20% of the population voted, that we can't as citizens of this country make it to the voting polls. I mean, 
it's a particularly difficult situation there uh, because of the history. But even in the United States, uh, by and large, uh, it is not incumbent upon us to consider our responsibility as citizens in this country. So the word citizen has become a very critical word. I don't think we see ourselves as citizens. Yes, I think a lot of us think of ourselves as consumers. Yes, I would say so. I would be misrepresenting my feelings to say that I'm not cynical about our society today and the fact that people are not advocates. And uh, about that, I'm going to mention something else shortly uh, because in the process of my own growth and learning, which has been a big part of my life, I've always, I've always wanted to extract as much as I could in this life, whether it be my love of music or literature or art. But now I realize that I almost feel like it's a part of my DNA to really become an advocate and to become civically engaged uh, and to begin to try to inspire other people to do the same thing, uh, whether it's civic engagement in America or whether it's civic engagement in Syria. Uh, we really have a lot of work to do. And it's not that I don't enjoy playing tennis or golf or other activities, uh, but, you know, my priorities in life now have really shifted in a big way. Because of my platform as a gallery owner, I've developed a very, very affluent clientele over a period of time, many of whom I found needed direction in terms of their philanthropy. I felt, well, this is a perfect platform for me to help direct individuals towards possible philanthropic support for education. So that was part of the civic engagement in and of itself, and it's worked. I'm going to jump forward now to an idea that I had, which came very much out of the words of Leon Botstein, the phrase being humanist imperatives. So I've decided to start an online collective voice called Artists' Voices for Humanist Imperatives. Owing to the fact that I've had an extensive amount of experience in lobbying in Congress for artists' rights, unsuccessfully, I should say, and after many, many years, still at it, I think that particular uh, experience really catapulted me into larger action and the idea that the artist's voice, quote-unquote, could really uh, resonate. I think about what's happening in Myanmar with the Rohingyas, which I've been following for quite a while now, which is absolutely deplorable. And I don't hear any collective voice out there from the community of creative people. You know, Elton John can do a concert and raise a million dollars for AIDS. I think we can galvanize a larger, broader international audience and really, really uh, have them collectively become civically engaged across the globe in a way that's not been done. Years ago, when I was the president of the Art Dealers Association of America, I became aware of the fact that there was a patently discriminatory situation that artists faced, which was that an artist could not give his or her own artwork to an institution and receive the same fair market value charitable tax deduction a donor could receive. So an artist can only deduct the cost of the materials. Our country was not sympathetic to these issues whatsoever. And my initiative just kind of fell flat because there was no one really on the floor that would be supportive of this, except for John Lewis, who I met with a number of times and who was a real inspiration for me. He's, as we all know, he's a firebrand. And, and uh, it was through John, I think, that I really became involved in the African-American community in America when I began to really understand the history. I realized that uh, only through advocacy 
serious, consistent, rigorous advocacy could we affect change in a positive way in terms of social justice. So Brian Stevens spoke as a commencement speaker at Bard a few years ago. I was really moved by what Brian represented, like John Lewis, of the next generation. You are involved in a lot of things. Let's backtrack a little bit. You mentioned your work with refugees uh, in Berlin. I know that you went to the jungle in Calais. Can you tell us a little bit more about your experience there and how that propelled you to support refugees? Well, I owe in large part that experience to my partner, Allegra, who is Italian, and she was painfully aware of the circumstances with the refugees in Europe and Italy and Greece. And as I became increasingly aware of it, we elected to register to work for this grassroots organization called L'Auberge des Migrants in Calais, um, instead of taking a holiday vacation over Christmas, New Year's uh, in 1617, we went to Calais. We, we uh, immediately joined a group of about 100 volunteers that were working in this depot, which was about a mile down the road from the jungle, where food was received, clothing was received. You know, everyone had an opportunity to, to, to really devote their time to what they wanted to do. So I chose food. And um, she chose clothing, and we both spent our days basically receiving and packing and distributing food and clothing in the middle of winter. And then we went to the jungle itself and found ourselves just absolutely shocked at what we saw, which were the most deplorable and horrible conditions. While we were there, uh, we learned about these two young British playwrights in their 20s who had started a workshop in the jungle uh, within this tent that was funded by a woman in England, a filmmaker, to provide a kind of sanctuary uh, or oasis within the jungle for creative people that wanted to attend workshops to do performances in the evening. When we learned about that, we attended these performances and began to meet some of these extraordinarily gifted individuals. And it was truly a sanctuary. It was truly an oasis because here you are in the midst of 5,000 people that are crammed into this very small amount of space where the mud was literally a foot deep. The Good Chance Theater was named um, appropriately uh, Good Luck, Good Chance if you can get out of here. Then I thought to myself again, what are the hopes of these individuals? When I uh, came back to Berlin subsequently at Bard College in Berlin, which is accredited in Germany, I thought, wow, what a great opportunity for me to begin something here that would benefit the refugees in the way of higher education, similar to the Bard prison model where you're providing free education for prison inmates, really disenfranchised. I undertook that almost immediately and made the first gift, a four-year commitment, and we began the program. And in the past 18 months, I've, I've been able to generate 17 scholarships, four-year fully paid room and board and tuition for four years is my dream uh, that these students could do a foreign exchange and come to America and study at Bard for six months. Now with the visa bans, we're finding it's impossible, which is a lament uh, for many reasons because, as we all know, the cultural exchange and educational exchange programs have enormous benefits for society. Yes, indeed. 
It's very impressive that you have engaged not just across causes, but also grassroots going to Calais and then doing something much more high level in funding scholarships for refugees to study in a university. I think there are very few people like you. So I want to change tracks a little bit since you are an internationally known art dealer. And I've seen a YouTube video of your TED Talk uh, about why art matters. You were discussing the work of a Colombian artist, Beatriz Gonzalez, and her subject, Colombia's long history of civil war, the drug trade, and the unending violence in her country. Can you tell me more about the role of art for humanity, especially since you mentioned the initiative that you intend to start in the new year? Your question is really spot on about why art matters. And apropos of Brian Stevenson's desire to build a memorial in Montgomery, Alabama, and to have memorials enacted throughout the 27 lynching sites in America over the course of the next few years, um, we need to address our history much as the Germans had to address their history with the Holocaust Memorial, I became very involved with Rachel White-Reed, who's one of the artists I represented, who did the Vienna Holocaust Memorial in the Judenplatz in Vienna. It's beautiful. It's very beautiful, and it was a long, uh, arduous process to get it built. It stands there today as a monument to man's inhumanity to man and as a visual artwork that is one of the great monuments I can't tell you every person that I know that has gone to see that monument that has spoken to me about it. I can't imagine that they could not in some way have been changed in some small way from that experience. Seeing that building and the embodiment of the idea inherent in her work, which was the lost knowledge that occurred during the Holocaust with the burning of books and the fact that this was this hermetically sealed library. The representation of that lost knowledge was so powerful. So I fully subscribe to the idea that the visual arts can effectively transform one's thinking. Yes, definitely. So how does art shape your own civic engagement? Tell me more about your work with Brian Stevenson. I'm invited to Boston by a dear friend and someone who's very involved in similar social platforms, educational platforms, because they knew about my involvement with the Bard Prison Initiative and they invited me up to this little gathering of people where Brian was going to speak. And Brian and I chatted at the beginning of the evening and he was speaking about the prison initiative and how great it was that I'd been so involved and he'd love to, to talk to me more and how could we work with artists together my first response was, well, you should really get to know Glenn Ligon, who's an artist that I think you would be very sympathetic with and he – with you. And he goes, oh, I would love to, to meet Glenn and to uh, begin to work with you. And so I said, I have an idea. I'll follow up and be in touch with Glenn. So in the meantime, serendipitously, Agnes Gund, who's a dear friend and a wonderful philanthropist, had hosted an evening for Brian in New York and invited Glenn, who's also very close to Agnes. And they met. And this happened all within the same, like, two-week period by some chance. And I had written to Glenn in a long email about how I discussed with Brian the idea of working together. And Glenn writes me back saying, you won't believe this, but I met him last night. And he signed his book to me with hope. And I said, what do you think of the idea of you're creating a multiple that we sell, something with value and resonance, 
the gallery will finance the production of it, the full proceeds of which will go to the Equal Justice Initiative. Glenn said, let me think about it. So he comes back to me about a week later and goes, I've got this idea that, you know, ever since Brian signed his book with hope, how about if I do a neon with his handwriting with hope that we could produce economically and sell? Within three months, we had it produced. And within six months, we had it fully sold. And it brought 10 people together, all now owning and supporting Equal Justice Initiative, who bought a work of art because of their love of Glenn's work, but also because of the fact that they were interested in, um, in the platform of the Equal Justice Initiative. So that was a wonderful dovetailing of sensibilities. There's a way of, of becoming engaged and using art as a platform. You have rolled up your sleeves basically everywhere you see a need. I think that's very impressive. You don't wait. You just jump right in. Well, you're kind. I'm a bit of an idealist, more than an idealist, but hopeless uh, romantic in terms of believing that one I think that's can awesome. change. You can. You can change. Yeah. In fact, you have changed yeah, yeah, people's yeah, lives, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, No, it's great. This morning I woke up to emails from Bard College Berlin that they just got a check from this woman who I invited to the opening. As I say, you can't quantify the sense of excitement or the sense of pride that one has in achieving those things. Yes, it's difficult to quantify. Yeah, yeah. What is your most meaningful engagement? What makes you most proud? And it can be something you're doing right now, something that you're really excited about because it's current, or something that you've done in the past, or maybe both. I don't know exactly, except for the fact that for some reason, all of these initiatives that I've become involved with seem to inspire me to believe in what you just said, is that you can affect change. I think more than anything right now, what I really aspire to is just seeing more people become more involved. I don't care whether they give money in, in support through my profession. I see the way people spend money. I, I see the amount of wealth that people have, and they could be doing infinitely more than they're doing. People have the capacity to give far more than they do. It's always a quid pro quo, though, I find, which is the sad part. I, I revel in meeting those individuals that really do it because they really feel it's the right thing to do, not because they're going to get a tax deduction or not. It matters a lot to be an advocate and to raise awareness I think people think very lowly of that as a concept, but the reality is that social pressure works, that having the one-on-one -on -one conversation, sitting in a room and listening to experts speak about refugees or about equal justice makes all the difference in the world. If you read about it in the newspaper or if you see a short video, it's really not the same as having the personal human contact right. in space and time. Clearly, we're kindred spirits. You've taken this on, not because of any reason, but because you are, by default, uh, an advocate uh, for very similar platforms and ideas. And, you know, that's the sweet spot here. That's the real dividend at the end of the day, the relationships that you develop and you cultivate I have one last question. Since you are an advocate and you really are invested in making this planet, this whole world, a better place, when you think of the future, what do you feel we need to do now? We really need to use our voices in a way that our voices are not being used. And I believe in the arts. The arts are critical. And apropos of my TED Talk, which really dealt with man's continuing 
inhumanity to mankind. I think we need to stare that beast right in the face. And that's why this collective online voice becomes an increasingly viable idea where like your podcast is going to be disseminated. People will listen to it and maybe be affected by it. But I really think that we need to get up literally off of our proverbial asses. What's happening with the Rohingyas in Myanmar uh, is something we really need to seize upon and look at. It's difficult because the reality is that when you do that, you realize that um, it's us. <laughs> you know, we, we are those people. We, we continue to commit those crimes against each other, not only when we are actually involved, which obviously you and I are not, but if you're looking the other way, you are in some way complicit. We really touched upon the essence of it. The silence is deafening. When I think of the lack of the collective voice, hence artist voices for humanist imperatives, I think there's merit to that discussion. I really want to pursue it in the new year. That and I'm hoping great. I can find some more advocates that will sign on. I'm sure you will. You are very persuasive. And also, I'm very happy that in this world today, we have an advocate like you. Thank you very Not much. Not at all. My pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Roland Augustine is on the show because he's an everyday citizen who rolls up his sleeves and gets to work. He's committed to fulfilling the opportunity and obligation as an active member of our society to advocate for change and social justice. His history of causes is varied, ranging from artists' rights to prisoners and refugees. His activism spans the spectrum from grassroots volunteering in a refugee camp to high-level philanthropy in higher education. He shows us that there is no shortage of opportunity for each of us to find something to support. Most importantly, Mr. Augustine believes that he can affect change. The more he is engaged, the more he is inspired and inspires others to become involved. I admire his courage to stand up for humanity and to gather a collective voice in support of humanist imperatives. With this example of serious and consistent advocacy, how can you resist the call to be an active citizen? How will you get involved? On the next episode of Future Hindsight, our guest is Joe Hardigan. He's a retired New York City Fire Department lieutenant and passionate ferry service advocate since 1995. His tireless efforts finally paid off last year for his Rockaway community. You got to pick something and stay with it. Realize that not everybody's going to do equal amount of work. Not everybody's going to show up. And you just kind of have to start focusing. Until next time, I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Tsumud. Find us online at futurehindsight.us and listen to us through your favorite streaming services.